Hello and good evening geeks. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. This is episode 107, if you can believe such a thing. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And we are going to get started with some news straight in there because there is news about Deadpool 3. I mean, it's not big news, it's not important news, but there's a picture which is not exactly Radio Gold, I know. But if you just Google Deadpool 3 Wolverine or Wolverine Deadpool 3, you will see a picture of Hugh Jackman himself wearing a yellow suit that is almost certainly kind of comics accurate in his role as Wolverine in Deadpool 3. So yes, the rumours are true. Hugh Jackman is absolutely playing Wolverine in Deadpool 3. There can be no further doubt. I know one or two people were still going, oh, but no, surely they can't do that. But they can. Of course they can. Uh, it's going to be some kind of multiversal story. And I know that some people are fed up of multiverse stories already in movies. But do you know what? Welcome to the comics, pal. We've been doing multiverses for decades. And in any case, if you're sick of multiverse stories, I suspect Deadpool 3 is going to be the Mickey take that you've been looking for. I mean, the picture doesn't tell us anything else. It's literally just Hugh Jackman with, well, with who I assume to be Ryan Reynolds in the Deadpool suit. But of course, it's the Deadpool suit. So who can tell? It could be anybody under there. But it is definitely Hugh Jackman in a yellow, I want to call it spandex. It's not spandex, but a yellow superhero suit that is pretty close to the yellow suits that the X-Men wore in the 90s in the comics. So that's cool. I am going to pause just for a second to be mildly irritated that a man who is three years older than me can look that good in a suit that tight. It's annoying. It's bad enough that he's talented. That he should be that good looking too is frankly quite unfair. And before anybody points out that yes, I didn't put in all the hard work that Hugh Jackman put in and presumably continues to put in to maintain that physique. I've got a horrible feeling that even if I did do all that work, I still wouldn't look that good. So my irritation stands. The other big bit of Deadpool 3 news this week is that Jennifer Garner is going to reprise her role as Elektra in Deadpool 3. Now, this is fun, actually. Uh, my initial response was, why? Because, let's be honest, Electra as a movie is not great. I mean, it's spun out of the 2003 Ben Affleck Daredevil movie, which was also not great. Although, to be fair, both to Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner, neither of them were the problem with that movie. And Jennifer Garner was not the problem with Electra either. The problem, of course, was utterly Bobbin's writing. We were still five years away from Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man at that point, don't forget. And while there had been 1998's Blade sort of setting the bar quite high, Marvel at that point still hadn't quite understood what it could do. As, as I recall from things I've read over the years, I don't think Jennifer Garner has particular fondness for the Electra movie. So the fact that she's coming back for Deadpool 3 in that role suggests a couple of things. It suggests, first of all, that she has a sense of humour, because clearly, 
clearly Deadpool is going to be making fun of all of this, both of her as Elektra, of that Daredevil movie, of the multiverse concept in general, all of that. I'm expecting some digs at the Flash movie for a start. I hope it also suggests that they've paid Jennifer Garner quite a lot of money to do this. All things considered, from what I've seen and heard so far, I am really looking forward to Deadpool 3. I am not, I should say, the biggest fan of Deadpool as a character, but I like Ryan Reynolds. And the movies, so far at least, have had just about the right level of not taking this seriously about them. And in other news, well, that's about all the news we have, I'm afraid, because, well, movie news and TV news is somewhat sparse at the minute, because the American side of the industry is still pretty much shut down. The sooner they get that strike organised by, you know, paying people for the work they actually do, the better. Anyway, enough. Time to boldly go and talk about something else. For verily, I am king of the Segway. So, Strange New World, Season 2, Episode 4. Among the Lotus Eaters. Okay, now, first thing, really good to see Captain Pike back on his show. Because, sorry, I know it's an ensemble cast, but we're only here because we love Captain Pike. So, have 50% of the episodes in the season so far, not really feature Captain Pike. Bit of a downer. This week's downer was a different kind of downer, which we'll get to, because it also kind of led to one of my favourite moments in Star Trek history. So we'll get to that. But first, what are we talking about here? Well, this is a reference-heavy episode. First of all, The Lotus Eaters. Clearly a classical reference to The Odyssey. Specifically, the incident where Odysseus and his crew put ashore in what is now believed to be Libya and find a culture that eats the flower of the lotus. Odysseus and his crew partake of these flowers and fall into deep sleep and forget who they are and where they're going. And their mission, therefore, is horribly, horribly threatened. And that is what happens here. The Enterprise travels to a planet where their memories, the crew's memories, obviously, are affected. And they can't remember who they are or what they're doing or what they do, uh, with obviously challenging results. And as a premise for an episode, that's actually quite cool. And we'll get to how that works out in the end. It's also a reference because the planet in question is Rigel 7. Now, this is referred to in the very first episode of Star Trek ever the pilot episode, The Cage, which featured Captain Christopher Pike and Spock. And they reference a previous mission to Rigel 7, which had been, frankly, a disaster. Now, in this episode, the Enterprise is tasked to return to Rigel 7 because following that disastrous mission in which three crew members were lost, the Federation has been monitoring the planet to make sure that 
local pre-warp population had not been contaminated by information from the Federation and that what was called at the time General Order 1 and is now called the Prime Directive had not been breached. And they're returning the Enterprise to Rigel 7 to check it out again because that observation had revealed a massive Starfleet symbol. The Delta thing, badge, what's it thing that they wear. A massive one of those on top of one of the buildings. So clearly some cultural contamination has in fact occurred. And so the episode continues as you would expect. They go to Rigel 7, they prepare an array, an away team. More about that in a minute. And Pike goes down to the surface in a shuttle. They can't beam down for, you know, reasons. Pike goes down in a shuttle to the surface with Dr. Mbanga and Lieutenant Laan Noonan Singh. There on the surface, it becomes clear that their memories are being affected to the point that they wake up the following morning and they can't remember who they are or why they're there. And they're taken in by a native of the planet who explains that this happens to all of us. We all lose our memory every night. The people who live in the big castle don't, but we do. And that's fine and good and a blessing because we don't have to remember all the bad things that have happened to us. And the the character who takes them under his wing shows them that, you know, they all tattoo markings on their arms so that they know where they go to sleep and what's theirs and all that kind of stuff. Interesting thing. Uh, and when they go to the big castle, it turns out that, oh, you know, I'm doing it again, aren't I? Hang on a second. Spoilers! Spoilers! Nothing you've heard so far is a massive spoiler for the episode, but from now on, oh yeah. So, what they discover is that one of the Enterprise crew members that they thought was dead was in fact not. And he had used Starfleet technology, mostly phaser rifles, if we're honest, to take control of the local population. The reason everybody forgets, and this is a massive spoiler that isn't revealed until the end of the episode, so seriously, the reason everybody forgets is because of the influence of an asteroid that had hit the surface and radiation or something, it doesn't really matter, just hand wave it. This asteroid causes people to forget. The castle is built of material that is resistant to whatever it is makes people forget. And so the people within the castle do not forget every day. And the guards who venture out of the castle, they wear helmets made of the same stuff, so they don't forget. But everybody else forgets. And the fact that they forget is used to control the people. When this is discovered, Pike is appalled, action is taken, the day is saved, and the asteroid is removed. Which Pike says doesn't violate the Prime Directive for reasons. Anyway, also, at the same time, up in space, everybody on the Enterprise is forgetting as well. Because in order to make sure that the Enterprise cannot be detected, they've flown into a debris field that orbits the planet, which is made of the same stuff as the asteroid. So everyone on the Enterprise is forgetting too. And that's a problem, because if you're on a massive starship and you forget who you are and how to do your job, that's a thing. And this is where we get to the brilliance of this episode and one of my favourite Star Trek moments of all time. Actually, two. Two. Definitely two. First is that Helmsman, and that's the term they use, don't look at me, Helmsman, Erica Ortegas, is designated to go on her first away mission. She doesn't only get to do away missions because she has to stay on board the ship to, you know, fly it. But they need an expert pilot for the shuttle. So 
Initially, Ortegas is slated to go on the away mission as shuttle pilot. And so she gets all geared up in like the local gear. And he's all like really psyched for it. Even wears a special hat. Because, as she points out, to a fairly doubtful Laan. The hat is supreme. And I've got to admit she wears it well, but she has to take it off because the Enterprise is going to be in that debris field and they need the pilot aboard to, you know, make sure the ship doesn't go boom boom. Tegas will not be piloting the shuttle. She's needed on the ship. Pike, who he points out is a test pilot, will pilot the shuttle. Ortegas is gutted. But it turns out to be really, really good from the point of view of the ship not going boom boom. As everyone on the Enterprise forgets who they are and what they do and how they do it, even Spock, who forgets how to read, because worth pointing out, it has been revealed that Spock is dyslexic, and when he forgets, he loses all his coping strategies. And man, can I relate to that. As everybody forgets, the Enterprise falls into chaos, and Ortegas' first instinct is to go and hide. And this is where smart speakers prove their worth, because in the end, there is a strong argument to say that on this instance, the Enterprise was saved by the power of Alexa, because Ortegas has a habit of talking to herself. So instead of having all this, this doubt and confusion internalised, like most people would, Ortegas actually asks, who am I? And the ship answers, you are Erica Ortegas. And as the ship falls into the debris field and starts to be pounded by asteroids, asks out loud, who can get us out of this? And the computer says, you are the pilot. And she says, I'm a pilot? And accepting that this is the case, Ortegas makes her way back from her quarters to the bridge, constantly repeating to herself, I'm America Ortegas. Fly the ship. Sorry about the background noise, I couldn't isolate the speech from the clip, but you get the point. I'm Erica Ortegas, I fly the ship. I'm Erica Ortegas, I fly the ship. And of course she is, and of course she does. That is at the heart of who this character is. Ortegas has already become my favourite character in Strange New Worlds. Uh, I think ungodly thoughts about her less than I think ungodly thoughts about Nurse Chapel. And actually, perhaps that's kind of the point. What I love about Ortegas is her easygoing dedication to duty and her obvious love of flying this ship. It comes through in every scene she's in, and she really is Sulu. She is absolutely Sulu. She is the perfect predecessor for Sulu, and it's clear that Kirk's Enterprise always had a pilot that loved it. And I, I adore that. So, yeah, overall, there are things you can nitpick with this episode, but I'm not going to. Uh, there are some really key character moments. I mean, we will forever be returning to... America, Ortegas. Fly the ship. And I wish that this was video because I would love for you to see the look on Ortegas' face as she strides purposefully through the confused corridors of the Enterprise, repeating that over and over and over again. It's just, I don't know why it appealed to me so much, but it really, really did. So there's that. There's also a little bit about Pike here. One of the things we've seen about Pike in both seasons of this show so far is that Pike is calm and rational and pretty much unflappable. He does not 
react without thinking. And violence is always, always, not only the last resort, but the last resort after he's hung around for a bit and really, really thought about it. He does not leap to attack. He is not Kirk. He is very, very much not Kirk. Uh, something that was made very clear in a previous episode in season one, when the fact that he isn't Kirk meant he didn't act decisively enough and, you know, caused a war with the Romulans. Yet here, when Pike's memory returns, when he's inside the big castle thingamajig and he learns what his former ensign has done and is quite intent on continuing doing, he starts knocking the stuffing out of the dude. And the idea here is that the forgetting, the loss of the memory, reveals who you really are when you've forgotten all of your pretenses and all of your, your social mores and all of your checks and all of the self-censoring that we all do. You are revealed for who you are. And it turns out that who Pike is, under all of that control, is an inherently violent man. And that's, that's, a, that's really interesting, the idea that within this incredibly controlled, laid-back person is all of this pent-up rage. I love that. I hope they explore that more because the, the implications of that are, as Spock would say, fascinating. Overall, this is a really solid episode of Star Trek, and... I thoroughly enjoyed it. I liked that all of the little Easter egg type references to the original series and to the cage. Uh, and at one point they actually get put in a literal cage. Uh, all of those little references are there for the hardcore nerds to find. But if you're not a hardcore nerd, if you're just a casual fan, if you're just watching Strange New Worlds because you've heard nice things about it. You don't need to get them. You don't need to know them. You're not left with the feeling that you're missing something. And that's really cleverly done. There's a lot of character work going on here as well. We see, again, some of the vulnerability of Lieutenant La'an Nun Singh. And we also get a little bit more reference, not detail, but reference to the fact that not only is Dr. Mbenga uh, a very, very capable fighter, you know, somebody who is very, very good at hand-to-hand -hand combat and who has great experience in this. But that this is widely known. This is this is a thing that Mbengo is recognised for and that he hates this. He's a doctor. I, mean, he, I, I just want him to say, damn it, Chris, I'm a doctor or something like Bones would have. But, you know, he clearly hates the fact that he was not taken on this away mission because they thought they might need a good doctor. They were taken on this away mission because Pike thought there was a very good chance that it might come to fisticuffs. And if it came to fisticuffs, Mbenga was somebody he wanted in his corner. I mean, I'm looking forward to getting that aspect of Mbenga's character a little bit more explored, because I think, again, there's a, there's a rich mine of stuff there. So it's not my favourite episode of the season. I think that still has to be the courtroom episode two, uh, the name of which I've forgotten just off the top of my head, which I know turns out not to have been massively popular with quite a lot of people. And and I don't understand why. I, I, I genuinely don't. I loved it so much. I, I, I understand that, you know, 
quite a lot of the, the Enterprise crew spends their time watching television. Uh, th- maybe it's because I know that that was a reference to the uh, original series episode, The Menagerie, in which most of the crew spend their time watching television and we watch them watching it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it's anyway, it doesn't matter. You, you are allowed to disagree with my five star review. It's fine. So, yeah, another strong episode in what I feel has been a strong series. Uh, I am interested to note that many people don't agree with me, but hey, do you know what? I'm used to that. Ah, anyway, I suppose we're done now, aren't we? I'm just waffling. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's boldly go somewhere else. Okay, so I guess let's move from fictional space to actual. And we're going to start with a bit of a blow to Elon Musk's SpaceX. And you may have noticed that whenever it's a bad thing, it's Elon Musk's SpaceX. And whenever it's a good thing, it's just SpaceX. Because I'm biased, I admit it. One of those things where I'm, I'm genuinely kind of torn. Because this is great, this is a fantastically interesting advance. But it's also a fantastically interesting advance in something that I'm not sure we should be advancing into. And it's being made by people who are not basically on our side. So we've talked a lot about SpaceX's Starship rocket uh, and its heavy lift super stack kind of thing and how it, you know, did a reasonably good job of launching when they tested it, but it destroyed its launch pad and, you know, crashed. We've talked at length about one of the things that SpaceX is trying really hard to do is bring down the cost of getting stuff from the surface into space because at the moment it is outrageously expensive i mean it's prohibitively expensive to put anything even as large as a shoebox into space you are talking literally hundreds of thousands of dollars which is i'm just doing the calculations now a metric shed load of cash if space is going to become accessible then the cost has to come down and one of the ways you can do that is to power your rocket with methane. Because methane is many, many things. It is combustible. It is a very good store of energy. And, and this is rather crucial, it's cheap. It's as cheap as cow farts. We can manufacture it in huge quantities. And if we can successfully use methane as a rocket fuel, it will cut down... I mean, it's Orders of magnitude cheaper than hydrogen, and it's easier to store than hydrogen. Hydrogen is a nightmare to store because the atoms are so tiny, they basically get through whatever you put them in. Okay, Hydrogen atoms are smaller than helium atoms. And you know those helium balloons you buy that go down so quickly? They don't do that because they leak. They do that because literally the mylar the balloon is made of is essentially porous as far as helium is concerned. Hydrogen, smaller than that. So... It's really hard to keep hydrogen in storage. 
brain is, you know, relatively speaking, quite a big molecule. And so it's much easier to keep it in storage, even in its gaseous form. Also, I'm told. I mean, I'm not a chemist, but, you know, these are the things that people whose job it is to know about these things tell me. And so in their quest to bring the cost of accessing space down, SpaceX has been working very hard to be the first people to produce a commercially viable methane powered rocket. And they've been beaten and they've been beaten by the Chinese. Uh, Land Space Technology Corporation, uh, which is a China based startup, uh, I, I see, I'm, given the nature of the Chinese government and the Chinese economy, I'm not sure if we can think of anything that is starting up in China as being anything other than a, a, a subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, bear that in mind. Uh, but let's just take them at face value. Land Space Technology Corporation has successfully launched now a methane powered rocket. This puts China right out there at the front of space technology after you know SpaceX has fairly notably failed to do this. Uh, the and I, I've only seen this written down, I've not heard this said out loud. Um, I'm gonna suggest it's a Zook 2 rocket. Um, if you spell it in English it's J H U Q U E Clearly, that's not how you spell it in Chinese, whichever Chinese language that's in. Um, but anyway, that rocket, owned by Landspace, launched from the Jiquan uh, Satellite Launch Center in the Gobi Desert at 9 a.m. last Wednesday to deliver a test payload uh, into a sun-synchronous orbit, uh, which is the first time a methane-powered rocket has ever managed to do such a thing. Uh, they did try, Landspace did try uh, in December 2022, but the second stage of the rocket experienced a malfunction. That might sound familiar to people who watch SpaceX crash. Uh, and the rocket did not reach its intended orbit. So this methane-powered rocket, um, which I'm now just going to call the ZQ-2, uh, it's a two-stage liquid-propelled carrier rocket. Uh, the stack on launch pad is 162 feet, that's 49.5 meters tall, uh, and it's 3.35 meters, or very nearly 11 feet in American money, wide. Um, the two stages use engines that have been independently developed, uh, which I don't think is very efficient, and certainly SpaceX wouldn't have done that, but hey, it's worked. Um, the first stage uses four Jankei. Um, 12 uh, liquid oxygen stroke methane engines uh, that can deliver a thrust of uh, 268 metric tons, while the second stage uses one uh, Tianquei 12 and one Tianquei 11 engine. This is a great proof of concept. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons why people want to use methane. Uh, another option is kerosene, but that causes a lot of soot, which you don't want. Um, also, Obviously, you need oxygen because you need something to allow the flame to burn. Um, but oxygen and methane, unlike oxygen and hythane, hythane? hydrogen, for goodness sake, um, 
have very similar boiling points. Uh, and that means uh, they can be placed against the same bulkhead and they can be stored at similar temperatures, uh, which can't be done with hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, their temperatures need to be very different, so they require separate cabins. That adds weight, that adds complexity. Um, so, you know, methane is very, very attractive uh, as a fuel, therefore. But, but, and again, really, really, really important. Whenever you burn any fuel, you get the product of that chemical reaction. Burning is just a chemical reaction. It has products. If you burn hydrogen in oxygen, the exhaust gas, the bygas, essentially is water vapour. Now, it's not that there's no problem with releasing water vapour at high altitude, but water vapour is at least something that we know can be at high altitude. If you burn methane and oxygen, you get carbon dioxide. Now, is the case that even in Elon Musk's wildest dreams, the amount of CO2 that's going to be produced by putting people into space is never going to be as much as the amount of CO2 that we're currently producing just driving to Tesco's. But it is still putting CO2 into the atmosphere when we don't need to at a time when, guys, this might come as a shock, but I think there's enough CO2 in the atmosphere now. I think we can probably stop. Also, you're putting CO2 into the atmosphere at very high altitudes, which may or may not have increased negative effects. I'm not sure we know that at the moment. And of course, that's before we even think about the optics of trying to introduce the world to a cutting edge mode of transport that is using the same dirty fuels that we are trying so hard to move everybody else away from. In short, I think there are better ways to do it. Methane is very attractive as a fuel for all kinds of very good reasons. Very rational, very sensible, engineering-based reasons. But those are not the only considerations we should have. And I don't know, one of the reasons development in the area of space is important is because it makes us feel like we're making progress, positive progress towards something good. And using methane kind of does not feel like positive forward progress. So I'm not saying that that, that therefore means we shouldn't even consider using methane fueled rockets. I am saying, yeah, maybe not. Perhaps. Anyway, uh, I, do you know what? They're not going to ask me. So, yeah, there's the thing. Well done, China. What else is happening in space right now? Well, there is interesting news from NASA's Messenger spacecraft. Uh, this is the uncrewed space probe that is currently examining the planet Mercury. Now, Mercury is the closest planet to the Sun. It's the smallest planet in the solar system now that Pluto is no longer regarded as a planet. And it's a bit of an underappreciated, underregarded member of the solar family. Uh, perhaps because it's so close to the Sun, it's blinking hard to see. I have seen Mercury through a telescope, but it's really hard to spot. Because it's so close to the Sun, you can only really see it just before sunrise and 
do you know what? I'm not a morning person. Or just after sunset, because otherwise it's so close to the sun, you can't see it because the sun is too bright. And, you know, also don't point telescopes at the sun, folks. Just don't. And, you know, its proximity to the sun has also made it difficult to send space probes to. So nobody's ever really seriously speculated about life on Mercury. And so it's never going to be as sexy as Mars, frankly. Um, but there are some really interesting questions about this strange little world. For a start, we're not entirely sure where it came from. Also, it's got a metallic core, which is really dense and much bigger than you'd expect in a planet that size. And also, there's not much of an atmosphere on Mercury, but there's some. That close to the sun? Subjected to that much solar radiation and that, mu that much solar wind? Bearing in mind Mars can barely hold onto its atmosphere, how the heck is Mercury doing it? Well, the Messenger probe, which orbited the planet from 2011 to 2015, collected a whole bunch of data on Mercury's chemical composition, its geology, and its magnetic field. And in spite of the fact that data from Mercury stopped coming back from Messenger some time ago, because there are only 24 hours in a day and there are always a finite number of people on any scientific program, new information is coming to light from the observations that the Messenger spacecraft made. So we know now, uh, thanks to analysis by uh, Arizona State University, that although both Mercury and Earth have metallic cores, they are chemically very different from each other. And uh, Arizona State University uh, have looked at the data from the Messenger spacecraft uh, to map the amount of chromium on Mercury's surface. On Earth, chromium is the element that gives the colour to gemstones. Uh, chromium is the reason that rubies are red and emeralds are green, for example. Uh, and of course, it also is nicely shiny and protects metalwork against corrosion. Beyond that, you can find chromium in a variety of chemical states. Now, according to the Arizona State University study, the abundance of chromium on the surface of mercury can help to reveal the chemical conditions under which it was incorporated into rocks. Now, this is critical understanding for working out how, how mercury came to be uh, and what its geological history is. Mercury as a planet is um, oxygen deficient, to say the least, which means that the conditions under which the geology of Mercury formed is going to be very different to the conditions in which the geology elsewhere in the solar system formed. What this study has done is show us that the vast majority of chromium on Mercury is in Mercury. It's not on the surface. It's locked in that metallic core. Now, I'm not a good enough... Well, geologist isn't the right word here, isn't it? I don't know what you'd call a geologist on Mercury, but uh, geo means Earth, so not a geologist. A, merc a mercurologist, perhaps. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't personally understand how that knowledge is going to enable us to understand more about Mercury itself, but I know enough to know that that knowledge will help the people who do know what they're talking about figure this stuff out. So it 
making that discovery is a really important step forward in understanding planetary formation, which is something we need to know about if we're going to explore the solar system and beyond. And when I say it's the first step, I mean, we are talking baby steps. We are a long way from being Starfleet people. We are a long way from being Starfleet. But you have to start somewhere with your understanding of all of this stuff. And if we ever are going to boldly go anywhere, we this is this is basic. So, yay NASA, well done, dudes. And finally in space, another example of um, the UK making its presence felt. We are not known as a spacefaring nation here in the UK. Uh, we deliberately took a step back from putting stuff into space. I, I think we are the only country in the world ever to have had the capacity to put things in orbit and to voluntarily give that capacity up. I don't think that was a great move on our part, but we did that. We moved away from all of that side of space, but we never left space. And the UK is one of the best places in the world to get your small satellites built. We are very, very good at that in the UK. We have a huge bank of expertise and talent in that area. And we also have done a lot of work in the development of techniques for surviving in space and space medicine and that kind of thing. And in that vein, we have the UK's first space innovation laboratory opening, well, basically now at Oxford University. Uh, it's dedicated to the understanding of the effect of space microgravity on the aging process, which is fairly niche. Um, but it opened on the 6th of July at the Botnar Institute of Musculoskeletal Sciences at Oxford's Nuffield Department of Orthopaedics, Rheumatology and Mus Musculoskeletal Sciences, or ENDORMS, if you like the acronym thing. Um, also, musculoskeletal, that's a really hard word to say. Anyway, the laboratory, which is led by Dr. Garda Al-Sala, um, will have a direct operational connection to the International Space Station to follow their research experiments. Uh, in particular, they're going to be looking at um, research on human tissue samples that will perhaps give a better understanding of the mechanisms behind the process of aging, which might lead to potential treatments which could address age-related uh, disease. And this matters. You know, we're getting older as a world. The populations around the world are getting older. The birth rate is falling. People are living longer. That means there are going to be more old people around. And therefore, aging is becoming one of the most significant issues in society, particularly around health and more specifically ill health. So aging is characterized by a progressive loss of cellular function and is therefore associated with disease that include neurodegeneration, dementia, cancer, cardiovascular disorders, and infection, being more susceptible to infection. The consequence here is a massive impact on quality of life. If we're going to live longer, we do not want to be sick while we're doing it. And 
if we are going to have, obviously, if we are going to have a lot of old people who are ill, then that's going to be expensive and difficult to cope with. You know, by the time I'm 80, 80 year olds are going to outnumber 20 year olds. So if all of us, if my entire Generation X is all elderly and infirm at the same time, how on earth are the children of Gen Z ever going to have time to take care of us? They're not. So my generation kind of has it's, it's kind of important that my generation um, enjoys a healthy old age because we're going to need to be working in it. And uh, Dr. Al Salah has said that the microgravity in space acts to accelerate the aging process. And because of that, it provides an excellent platform to investigate the underlying cellular mechanisms that normally occur over a very long period on Earth. Direct quote. This collaboration, Al Salah hopes, uh, will help advance the understanding of human physiology and therefore human health on the surface of the planet and help us to find new drugs that can promote healthier aging, which has to be a good thing. So the Oxford Lab, you know, this is not a world first. The Oxford Lab is joining a global network of space innovation labs that have been created um, through a partnership between um, an organisation called um, Metavisionaries, uh, which is a UK based thing and uh, space application services. I'm not quite sure where they're based, actually. Uh, they're not a UK thing. Uh, the aim of the partnership is to promote uh, scientific, industrial and educational applications of the metaverse and cooperation on related space knowledge transfer. And yet that's a lot of words. And I understand what each one of those words means in that order. Not entirely sure. Um, the philosophy, though, is clear. Uh, the CEO of Metavisionaries, uh, a guy called uh, Wasim Ahmed, uh, said space belongs to us all and it is our shared responsibility to explore its potential for improving human life. Yeah, I think so. Um, Neil Armstrong said um, mystery creates wonder and wonder is the basis of man's desire to understand. And um, that seems to be where Metavisionaries are pitching themselves. So watch this space. Hopefully this is going to significantly improve the health and welfare of humans on the planet. And it's something to bear in mind when people ask, what is the point of going to space? Isn't it all a massive waste of time? Why don't we solve the problems on Earth first? One of the very simple answers to that is that's why we're going to space. It's not the only reason we go to space, but one of the reasons to go to space is because it's easier to solve the problems of Earth while you're up there. Did that count as the boring preachy part? Genuinely not sure. Anyway, we must speed on because we are running out of time. Now, this is where I would normally love to give you lots of information about comics. But for various reasons, I've barely read a comic in the last three weeks. And so I am totally not up to date. Uh, I am going to plug a couple of things that came out a couple of weeks ago that I finally got around to reading and really enjoyed. Uh, the first from Boom Studios is Creed. Now, 
I am not a sports movies fan. To this day, I have not seen Rocky. But because I knew this comic was coming out, I did watch all three Creed movies. I know, weird, yeah? And yeah, I liked them fair enough. I can pick massive holes in them, but I'm not gonna. I'm familiar enough. I'm a child of the 80s. Believe me, I'm familiar enough with the stories behind Rockies 1, 2, 3 and 4 that I get where Creed is coming from. I get the heritage. I know who Apollo Creed was. Uh, The Creed movies obviously tell the story of Creed's son, Adonis Creed. And they're all right, actually. The plot of of the first Creed movie is basically the plot of Rocky, as far as I can tell. But they're fine. Uh, Michael B. Jordan is flipping amazing in them. And Michael B. Jordan, I am told, although his name does not appear on the cover, has had some input into this story. Now, the comic, for reasons, and I genuinely don't get why they've done this, but the comic is set 10 years into the future. It's set in 2033, 10 years after the events of the movie Creed 3. And they follow Creed's daughter, who also wants to be a fighter. And she's very much following her dad's example by, you know, fighting in places she probably shouldn't and getting into all kinds of scrapes. Her dad, obviously, not best pleased with this. Uh, Like many parents, he's quite happy for his kids to make their own mistakes but very unhappy for them to make the same damn fool mistakes that he made. And essentially, the comic is following the same sort of well-trodden ground that the Creed movies and the Rocky movies trod. You know, young fighter, faces obstacles, through grit and determination, makes what they want to happen, happen. It's a story about self-belief, about perseverance, and... So far, so predictable, but also so far, so good, because there's a reason stories like that are successful. There's a reason now. There are how many Rocky movies? Five, six and three Creed movies that all basically tell the same story. And we lap it up because it's a story we want to hear. And, you know, the Creed comic is part of that. My only issue really is why is this a comic? It feels very much like the Creed 4 movie that they apparently aren't going to be able to make. Is that just because they needed Creed's daughter to be 10 years older than she currently would be for its work? And they don't want to wait 10 years to make the movie? I don't know. Is it that they couldn't get funding to make this movie and thought comics were a cheaper way? Or did somebody genuinely just think, yeah, comics is the way to go with this? I don't know. I do know it works. So there's that. And, you know, I like that although this is set 10 years in the future, they haven't gone all pointlessly futuristic with anything. You know, nobody's got a holographic phone or any nonsense like that. Got is genuinely just good, solid storytelling, which, you know, in a comic is always good. And speaking of things that are always good, I really do need to say a word about Barnstormers uh, by Tula Lote and Scott Snyder. This came out a couple of weeks ago as well, and it's stunning. Now, you know I am easy for planes, Uh, and this is set in the early years of aviation, where between the wars, a time when in America, barnstorming was actually a thing. People would buy 
or build their own biplane, usually biplanes, small aircraft. And they would fly them from town to town and try and earn money by getting people to pay to watch them do aerial stunts and that kind of thing. It was very dangerous. But the pilots involved had often fought in the First World War. And if you flew a plane in the First World War, honestly, every second of life you got after that was a bonus. And it made people not reckless per se, but certainly fearless, certainly unconcerned with that kind of risk. So barnstorming attracted a certain personality type. Uh, Lotte and Snyder's story involves a relationship between two pilots, uh, a, a female pilot and a male pilot. And, you know, the romance, sexual tension that is between them. It's a heady story of recklessness and murder. It's beautifully told and beautifully illustrated. Uh, Tula Lotte is an artist who does not do interior work on comics nearly as often as I would like. Uh, I guess because she gets paid quite a lot of money to do cover work. And, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that because of the, the detail that she puts into her illustration, that she's probably quite expensive to do in, in terms of time and therefore money to do interior work. But it's stunning. This is such a beautiful book. Um, I'm not quite sure how to describe Lotte's art. I normally talk about, talk about comic art in terms of the line. Lotte doesn't really have line. Um, I don't know what medium she works with, whether it's, it's digital imitating pastels or actual pastels or something that looks a bit like pastels. I don't know. I don't know enough about art. But the result is colour artwork with an incredible softness to it, uh, an incredible tone to it. I don't know how better to describe it than that. It allows a level of detail and expression that you rarely see in comics. And it's just, just beautiful to look at. Add to that the fact that the story is cracking. And you have got a magnificent piece of work on your hands. So please, please take that as a very serious recommendation. Both comics are 480 from Destination Venus or um, 450 if you ordered them in advance, which you didn't. Creed from Boom Studios and um, Barnstormers from Dark Horse. Uh, I would just say that um, you're getting a lot more comic for your money with Barnstormers. Both are great. But uh, if you're only going to buy one, Barnstormers is the one I would go for. Uh, and, oh, obviously, um, other comic shops are available. Anyway, on we go with another couple of news items, and then we're probably going to need to start wrapping up. Uh, so, very quickly, last week I said that we were going to give threads from uh, Meta a go. And that's so far, so good. Uh, I've heard some chatter from a few people that, you know, that they're unwilling to move over to threads from Twitter uh, because of Meta's habit of just hoovering up all of your personal information and selling it to whoever. And yeah, I, I get that concern. I really do. That said, if you're on social media anywhere, someone's doing that already. So, you know, that ship has already sailed. The only way to avoid giving away 
a lot of personal data is to not be on social media at all, which is genuinely a thing that you can do. And I, I think a lot of people are taking that option now. I think social media has had its peak, at least in the any kind of form that we currently recognize it. But if you are looking for something that does everything that Twitter did before Twitter went insane, then um, threads seems to work. It seems to do the job. Uh, it's not perfect by any means. Uh, there are a couple of annoying little things about it, but mostly, mostly it's fine. In the meantime, I have to say, Twitter continues to deteriorate. I am unclear what, if any, business plan is currently operating at Twitter, but it, it, it doesn't seem to be doing all that well, I think I would have to say. Now, obviously, I, I've given up predicting the ultimate demise of Twitter because, frankly, I thought it would be long gone by now, and it is still hanging on. And what what seems to be keeping Twitter hanging on is a sense of community that exists there. There are an awful lot of people, I think, who sort of, for good or ill, found their tribe on Twitter. Um, I, know, I know I have met a lot of people through Twitter that I wouldn't have found any other way, I don't think, who, you know, their work is now quite important to me. That that Twitter relationship is quite important to me. And I'm, I'm not going to walk away from Twitter until I know that those relationships are going to be carrying on somewhere else. Or, obviously, until Twitter utterly does choke. And I, a lot of people feel the same way. I, I think that does explain the the frankly, quite surprising tenacity of Twitter because it's clearly not being competently run anymore. News breaking today that uh, Twitter under Musk um, probably owes former employees literal millions of dollars in, sever in unpaid severance pay. Uh, we know that they're not paying rent on most of their offices and you know they don't appear to be prepared to settle very many of their bills. Now, you cannot run a business like that. Sooner or later, people will simply stop providing you services. And while Musk is probably right, they probably can do without quite a lot of the office space they have. You've got to put your servers somewhere if you're an, an internet-based company. And your people, particularly if you're going to insist your people come into the office in the way that Musk does, your people do need an office to go to. And one thing that landlords across the world have in common is that if you don't pay your rent, they will kick you out. I think the writing on the wall is there for Twitter. Now, whether platforms like Threads will simply mop up all of the people who are leaving Twitter, either by choice or because Twitter's no longer there anymore, remains to be seen. I mean, it's doing a good job so far. The fact that it is pegged to Instagram means that Threads was able to build a user base, a massive user base, incredibly quickly because a lot of people, anyone with an Instagram account, can not only open a Threads account, but populate it with a whole bunch of people that you're following really quickly, like three mouse clicks. And suddenly you're on threads following loads of people and with loads of people following you if you had followers on Instagram. Because the way they've got it set up, if people follow you on Instagram and they set their threads account to follow 
the people they follow on Instagram on threads, when, when you join threads, those people are immediately following you. So you are those communities that were so important to Twitter are kind of building themselves on threads, which is clever and, you know, possibly cheating, but certainly effective. So we'll we'll see. I mean, it's certainly something that the other Twitter clones, if you like, the likes of Hive and Spoutable, something that they were not able to do. That might end up being the, the thing, the factor that makes threads work and might make threads able to succeed where the likes of Spoutable and Mastodon and Hive haven't. But, you know, we'll see. We will see. Okay, we are running out of time. So a quick glance over at the Geek Community Notice Board shows me that all the usual stuff is happening. The Geek Pub Quiz is happening at the time it normally happens. Check out the Geek Pub Quiz on their social medias for more information about all of that. And please do check out Geek Retreat Harrogate's social medias for more information about what's going on there. Two things in particular that I want to plug, both of which, in fact, involve Geek Retreat. First of all, on the 5th of August, Destination Venus will be celebrating Small Press Day by going to Geek Retreat and running a workshop to show you, yeah, you, you, specifically you, how to make your own comics, how to create characters, how to put them in a story, how to structure that story to make a workable comic. Event will be free of charge. But I'd be grateful if you brought a pen. More information on that coming very soon. Also in August, on uh, the 26th, that's um, August Bank Holiday weekend, August Bank Holiday Saturday, in fact, uh, there is Harrogate's Pride Party. That is happening at Major Tom's in the evening and from 12 o'clock lunchtime at Geek Retreat. All kinds of things going on. That too is going to be a free event. Open to all. All like-minded people are welcome. The folks who are sort of taking on the, the, the task of organising Harrogate Pride uh, want to continue the, the proud tradition uh, of Harrogate Pride being inclusive to everybody. It's about pride in who you are. So, you know, you don't have to be gay, is what I'm saying. Uh, it'll be a great night, uh, and it'll be a great day at Geek Retreat. So um, mark mark it down in your diaries. It'll be a laugh. And I should say, um, yes, I am aware, uh, as are the organisers, that Pride Month is June. But two things. First of all, well, they couldn't get it organised in time for June because they didn't start until it became clear that the original Pride organisers were not going to get anything done this year. And uh, also, in any case, do you know what? Let's take Pride every month, not just one month of the year. Oh yeah, August 26th, uh, Major Toms and Geek Retreat. Uh, make a note in your diaries uh, and watch this space for more details as they become available. And that kind of is all we have got time for. We are rapidly running out of time. So I will pause only to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production engineered for what it's worth in Harrogate. We will be back next week with more geeky news, views and reviews from across the world. That's even the breaking news, literally the breaking news, that James Gunn has cast Metamorpho for his Superman legacy movie and it's perfect. But that's next week. For now, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else. I'll leave you with Erica. Hello.
America or take us. Fly the ship. 